Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Audrey Lobo Pulo, who's the founding director of Fiendsight. Welcome. Thanks, Alex. It's great to be here today. I thought with you we would kick off with a really interesting conversation about the digital transformation that we've been seeing, particularly in this COVID environment, and the speed of transformation that that has been coming alongside this uh, data wave. Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting space, Alex, because there have been a lot of companies and organizations who have been, you know, transitioning two-way digital transformation. And it's almost as if COVID has accelerated that journey. But what I find interesting is that the challenges remain the same. So, you know, there's still a lot of challenges around, you know, how do we do we go through this transformation? And what was really interesting was I read Forbes had a publication which suggested that something like $1.5 trillion US dollars was spent on digital transformation in 2018 alone. And of that 70%, of those transformations didn't meet meet their goals. So that's, you know, that's an awful lot of waste. And so the question then is, you know, why, you know, why is that? And what is it about digital transformation that makes makes this so tricky? And so my particular interest in this is has been around, you know, that connection between humans and technology and understanding that relationship between that. So in a digital transformation, how do humans adapt to the different technologies? What is the information that humans bring to the picture? Let's maybe go back in terms of data. And, and so many companies you talk to are all talking about their data systems and how they're building these big data warehouses. And But you, know, you can be flooded, right? There's so many different data points out there you can collect. There's so many different ways of creating sensors or signals to create data. Do companies really need to sort of think about the framing in terms of what data they actually need and understanding what does turn the dial? Yes, and that's an excellent question. You know, that kind of brings me to this melting pot of information. So, you know, you're absolutely right. We collect so much information and as we progress to a digital world, what's essentially happening from a human perspective is transactions like we go through every day are becoming more digital, which is different from the human side where there's a lot of interdependencies. So when there are people involved, there's a lot of interdependencies between people, there's conversation, there's emotion. But when you replace that with a digital mediator, what you're essentially having is that digital transaction. And that is the information that we, you know, we're just collecting more and more of prolifically. And that is sort of forming a lot of the big data that we see. But the sense-making part, which is what you allude to, is a whole new different story. So it's like, you know, with all this data, how are we able to make sense of that? And where does that human factor come in? And where is the human side of that data? How do you think about it or how should firms maybe think about the data they collect? Because there's all different types of data. You know, there's a very much the numerical data that's very on and off and very, very clear. And then you've got other data which can sort of sense emotion. We see a lot of data around polling, for example, with the elections coming up. And that's all very sensitive data and the spectrum is is quite wide. How do you sort of bring those two different types of, of data sets together? Yeah, so um, I'm glad you asked that, Alex, because, you know, I really wanted to talk to you today about warm data, 
which is a concept that Nora Bateson, who's the president of the International Bateson Institute, um, has put together. And I came across warm data middle last year in you know, trying to understand the sorts of data assets that organizations hold. Because in a very simple way, you could think of it as you know, the assets an organization has in terms of the information assets would consist of the digital assets, but also that knowledge piece, that tacit experience information that people hold. And so rather than think about those two you know, buckets of information side by side, the question then is how do you mix the two together to really uh, you know, make sense of the business problems that you're working with? And so when I came across Nora's work, you know, that, that really blew my mind. The International Bateson Institute is looking at this concept called warm data, and I'll tell you what it means. Warm data, in like my interpretation of it, is information that's continually evolving through many, many contexts. So, for example, you know, we are having this conversation in the context of a pandemic, and the conversation we're having around this is actually very different to a conversation we would have had pre-pandemic. And so that context is now sort of coloring that information and that information is always changing. So how does that information then mix together with the more traditional data to be able to give us better insights and to be able to better understand the solutions that we put forward to the table? It's interesting you talk about the subjective piece around data and we actually hear that a lot almost in in general media when there's particular data and statistics are put forward. One person says, well, this is terrible. Uh, this results look you know really bad, and other people say, "Well, it's not that bad." Other people say, "Well, that's good, right?" And and the lens or the perspective that you have on the data is really important. Is that really what you're trying to explain here? Yes, absolutely. So it's um it's the ability to be able to look at information, not just information that's put forward, but how you mix that information within the information that you collect through your life experiences or through your you know your own personal perspectives, and looking at that particular information through many lenses, like through a technological lens, through a health lens, through an economic lens, you know, with with a looming recession, what does that mean? How do I make sense of this information to me now? Um, And that will change over time because how I see the world today is going to be very different to how I see the world in five years' time, even if I am presented with exactly the same data that is objective. The natural progression for me when I think about this is that we keep talking about the implementation of machine learning and AI, but what's the ability of these types of tools to actually take advantage or or understand this subjective data that's there? Are they going to be parts of the data that are lost as they sort of push through these systems and outcomes come out? Yes, yes, absolutely. And so, you know, I think one of the biggest criticisms of AI um, today is the lack of, you know, context around the data that's collected. And by that, I don't just mean, you know, that the metadata is missing. I mean, the the context that an individual brings to that information that's been collected. And so because of that lack of contextuality, a lot of these machine learning algorithms, and this is even going beyond the the privacy issues and the, the data bias and the data quality issues. This is going to, how does one interpret the results from that? And that sense-making piece. And our AI has been criticized a lot for being a black box. And there's a lot of issues around, you know, the transparency on that decision-making by AI. But I think it actually goes deeper than that because every person has their own subjectivity and their own lens that they bring to a problem and a solution. 
And so how does AI and the information that it processes differ from the way we process our subjective information within us? And how do we put the two together to develop better solutions? You know, do we potentially open up a, a huge Pandora's box if we start saying that, okay, if you're using machine learning or some other AI system for, for this data, that it needs to be transparent so people can actually understand how decisions, how sort of data comes in, it's processed and a decision comes out. I know there's been a lot of discussion around impact of some of the social media companies around how they use data and, and how they, they rank things and how the algorithms work. Is that sort of what we need to be able to have to be able to make sure that we understand what's happening and this black box is sort of opened? Yeah, I think I think transparency goes goes a long way, but it's from what I've read, it's actually a lot more complicated than that, Alex, because sometimes having algorithms as transparent almost gives people permission to not question the solutions that are put forward because of the nature of that transparency. And so it brings us back to this, you know, really interesting cognitive piece, which is around how do we make sense of and algorithmic decisions, irrespective of whether or not it has that level of transparency. I mean, obviously, transparency is a good thing. But, you know, what does that mean in terms of the viability of those solutions from a systems perspective? But there's an also, I guess, a, an ethical problem that comes up with some of these these systems because, okay, you know, we've, we've got a system that's there. We, we're seeing AI being used, for example, in a recruitment process where p- people are filtered out. There's a negative screen. There's this inherent bias that can can be built into these systems. And sort of how do you, you deal with AI with these sort of ethical dilemmas that sort of come up? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a really tough question. And that's something that you know, many, many people are looking at. But for me, it's what's really interesting about that. And I read, I read recently in the Washington Post, they put out this article late last year, which said that there is AI facial recognition software, which actually looks at facial movement to be able to assess whether or not a particular candidate is suitable for certain roles in hospitality. And the other industry was actually the finance industry. And so what I find interesting about that, the facial movements go beyond just a race issue or a gender issue. I mean, I'm sure that's part of it. But the question then is, at what level are these biases at? Are they even detectable? And how does that impact the rec- the industry itself? So for example, if, if that AI was being used in the hospitality industry, and the bias was such that, you know, only certain people who had certain facial movements managed to get employment within that industry, how does that shape that industry? And so what are the patterns that we're starting to see emerge within that industry as a result of AI that otherwise would not have even been detected? So it's really it's a really hard problem to be able to correct without understanding the context of that. And I think the way we need to think about this is not just through the AI lens, but also through the systems lens. So the recruiting process and the employment system in and of itself, how does that work? How does that recruitment work? Is AI really necessary in that piece? And what role would that play? So these are some really, you know, really interesting questions that come up. I'd like to get into a little bit more about sort of this interrelationship between the systems and, and using big data to create insight. What specifically are you talking about when you talk about a system? I like to think about systems as many context layered one on top of the other. 
So for example, we look at this particular COVID pandemic and we see that the health system has been impacted, but more than just the health system being impacted, the economic system has been impacted. And even if you look at organizations and supply chains have been impacted. And so that interdependency between the health system, the employment system, the labor force system, the education system, those systems are all being disrupted by one shock which happens in the health space. And so those are the interdependencies that I'm speaking of. And AI is not really that different in that AI might disrupt one particular system and it might be, for example, the employment system. But then the question is, what are the impacts and how does that flow through to the education system or the economic system? It's really quite interesting because I think there's a lot of hype that I've seen and as well around what AI can do. But when I listen to you talk about it, there's a lot of unanswered questions that keep coming up. I think we're probably putting probably too much pressure on AI to deliver. Is that a fair assumption? Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I'd, I'd agree with that, Alex. I think, you know, all too often big data and AI is seen as the silver bullet. And until we fully understand the unintended consequences, not just the immediate unintended consequences in a particular industry, but the second order and the higher order effects that happen across other industries that shape the way our society works, we won't really know the, the full extent of the, the changes that are yet to come. And the other thing that, that comes to me is we've looked at big data a lot when we talk about investment operations in the asset management, asset owner space, and they talk about having a person that manages the data and the data analytics. But now when I start to think about warm data versus sort of this traditional data or cold data, what is the right person to actually be able to understand this subjective nature of the data? Yes, and it's such an excellent question because you would think that, oh, you probably need a systems specialist and a complexity specialist and a data specialist and a person specialist. And that's all useful. But if, if we think about the way nature works and the way humans have evolved, we've been working with complexity for a very long time. And so that the next question then is, you know, how do we provide the right conditions to be able to work with that complexity within an organizational setup? so that everyone who has a piece of that puzzle can come together and provide new insights into what's going on underlying, underneath those systems. And, and I think this is where the work that Nora Bateson's been doing with the International Bateson Institute's been really interesting because she's developed this process called Warm Data Labs, which are essentially group processes where people come together to look at a particular question across many contexts. And the, the really interesting part of that process for me is that you actually rec need people with a lot of different backgrounds coming together. So it's almost like they are adding the richness to that warm data piece within that organization to be able to navigate through that complexity. So yeah, it's probably too big a burden for an individual to be able to really understand the depths of that. But I think the power is in that collective and for the, for the collective to be able to see those patterns in that information. Let's maybe move to sort of a, a more of a live example and, and that's around the ESG, the environmental, social and governance aspects that a, a lot of the institutional funds and, and asset managers, to be fair, are, are looking at. I've worked historically in, in the impact space and understand that there's a lot of challenges around data. I see a lot of other challenges that now come up with the ability to collect data, you know, compile the data, and then actually see that that data has a direct relationship to outperformance. So can we potentially unpack the problems that maybe a lot of funds would be seeing in that particular space? 
Yes, absolutely. And, you know, the big challenge, even in the big data space, is what are the data gaps? Where is the fragmented information? Where is the information that falls between the silos? And where is the information incomplete? And I think without that that whole of systems perspective, it's really hard to understand how those metrics contribute towards the bottom line. So you mentioned the ESG factors and the metrics that I used for that. There's a lot of ambiguity around, you know, how those ESG metrics, um, what, what the linkage is between those ESG metrics and the investment performances. And what I, can, what, can, what I can say to that is that by understanding the system side, like the underlying systems of how those metrics actually meet an organization's mission or match their alignment, deeply understanding what the supply chains are, what the environmental aspects are, all contribute to understanding the performance of that investment. And so rather than say, you know, we're just going to, you know, tick the boxes that that show that the metrics are all, that the ESG metrics have been met and, you know, that's a good fund to invest in, really understanding the systems side underneath that gives you a better better feel and a better sense of what's actually going on under the hood. One of the things that sort of strikes me when you think about this ESG factors is that there's very much a an ordinal state of, of data, you know, maybe a one through five ranking of potential governance, for example, and then you've got this, you know, a large distribution of returns. And so how do you map those differences there? Because that to me comes up as a, as a yes. big problem. <laughs> yes. And so, you know, that's the classic example of trying to map the cold data as opposed to the warm data to a bunch of metrics because you've intrinsically missed that other piece of information and that context and that layering side, which provides the sense-making part of that. By only looking at the cold data, it's really hard to come up with models that can be reliable enough to say that's going to be the best investment performance. If I think about what a traditional asset owner or asset manager looks at, they're really focused on performance is first and foremost, and then they'll say around risk. So you could look at the moments of returns, you know, standard deviation, the variance and skewness and, and ketosis in data, but I can't see the link to the ESG piece. It's a really tricky one where, you right. know, how do you build those two and um, really still struggle to see it. Yeah. And, you know, the sustainability issues and that, that long-term piece is a really interesting one too, right? Like, um, even in the presence of a shock. I mean, we've, we're, we're undergoing an economic shock at the moment, but how does that impact investment decisions? I mean, that's all a bit of a big question still. What can maybe a fund do as they start to think about it? Because there's so many nuances around even each one of the, the factors. Like if you look at the environmental, it's just you know an infinite amount of potential metrics you look at. On the social side, infinite. On governance side, again, another infinite way of, of looking at at potentially warm data that then filters through into your investment process. You know, how, how does a fund actually think about that process? So really understanding those interrelationships between those different contexts, like the health, how does the health context and this COVID pandemic actually you know, affect supply chains? How are those supply chains distributed geographically? So now we look at it from an, you know, maybe an ecological perspective. What does this mean? Like how does climate change and the impacts there influence these decisions? I think having the data is is one thing, but understanding those connections and the interrelationships between the different contexts might provide like a richer understanding of that, as opposed to having, you know, 100 metrics on governance, maybe understanding those 
human interdependencies within an organization might be able to provide more of an insight than you know one particular metric in that governance piece. Is it fair to say that it's more of a, a qualitative data approach? Yeah, and the reason I hesitate a little there is because traditionally qualitative data is often seen as something that's static and it's more descriptive or you know it, it feels almost lifeless. But I suppose the distinction with warm data is that you know it's continually evolving and continually changing because it's it's about adapting to that environment, learning from interacting through a conversation or through a customer experience or through an investment. And that continual learning process is where that warm data sits. Whereas like the more traditional qualitative information could be, you know, like a description of where that data came from or the conditions around which that data was collected by whom it was, like who collected the data and a bit of the provenance of that site. So I think warm data is a lot more vibrant and has a lot more vitality in terms of the information that's being processed by humans as opposed to by 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 algorithms. And one of the other big pieces that comes in terms of finance is always performance relative to peers. And so I asked this question with the how do you make sure that you can do comparisons between organizations? That then becomes the problem if if people are sort of demonstrating their performance of ESG in sort of metrics and then in a financial perspective, how do you then compare to another fund? Yeah, and you know, that is that is the point of metrics really, is that the whole, I mean, I think the reason why we want a lot of standardization across metrics is to be able to do that comparison. And that has its place, and I'm not disputing that, but I think what's interesting is to be ready and aware of the challenges that occur when there is a shock to the system, you know, which to be able to assess the risk of certain decisions as opposed to others and get more information around that might be useful. So, you know, I definitely agree that having those metrics is useful on some, you know, for some purposes. But if you really want an understanding of how to adapt to unpredictable shocks and occurrences, having a good understanding of how that system works and what those inter- interdependencies are would go a long way to that. You mentioned their interdependencies and you've mentioned it a couple of times. One of the things that comes up with data and finance is that a number of funds or groups use the same types of systems, the same models. And so ultimately, because people use the same types of models, you end up with this interdependency and and tipping points in markets. How do you think about data and systems approaches to potentially reduce the systemic risk that may come from interdependency? I mean, that's a really good question. And, you know, it, it really boils down, like, at least to me, on the data that's collected and the information that's used. So even if the algorithms are very similar to one another, and even if the data is very similar, there is still that missing piece, right? Like there is still that organizational culture, the purpose piece, and how the warm data and the people within that organization affect the decisions within that organization. And I think that is where that differentiations piece would come in. So I'm not sure whether that ecosystem is enriched by having very similar algorithms or very similar data sets that are collected, or whether we need to start thinking about information across contexts that we wouldn't have otherwise considered to provide that level of richness to that information to get better decisions and better investment. Moving away from investments, Are there particular areas or sectors that you've seen AI um, transformation work more effectively? You know, I think AI has done, um, you know, made a lot of progress in the health sector, 
particularly with diagnoses. And you know, there's a lot of work going on right now in that space. And that's always a welcome progress. There's a part of me that wonders whether the reason why that's so successful is because it is a lot more objective and there's less of that, you know, subjectivity and interpersonal piece in that. And so that's food for thought. When does AI perform better? With what types of data? What amount of subjective information or objective information is required for better performance? In terms of the challenges that come up in working with organizations as you help to explain to them around the AI journey, what are the sort of questions that you get asked most commonly? I think it's not so much the questions. I think what's really interesting is that people have this notion that they just need to collect more and more data. And it might be a, you know, a private data set that they need to purchase, or it could be a data set that they don't have access to. But they feel that you know, the more data they collect, they will help them deliver better solutions to a problem. Now, I don't dispute that, but I think that is just, you know, one particular channel of getting that information and getting that level of improved performance. You know, having that warm data approach and really understanding the operational side and the organizational picture from a systems perspective has so much more value to deliver because you're actually sort of going underneath the hood and understanding those interdependencies. Um, and, you know, there are studies that show that sometimes big data isn't the silver bullet. And many organizations have looked at small targeted data to be able to answer certain questions. And so that is the main trend that I've observed is this hunger for as much data as possible, because the more data you have, the better your solutions are going to be, which is not necessarily true. Well, you also come up with potentially a lot more noise, a lot more cost, obviously, in collecting, yes. processing, <laughs> storing and as well. So, Absolutely. The other question that I want to sort of ask you, in, where are some exciting prospects for AI? I think, you know, a lot of the process type work and automation, and, and this is, you know, me kind of saying things that you've probably already heard in the media, is where we'll really see AI deliver the greatest benefit. But I think what's interesting is, again, this mix of objective data and subjective data. And my sense is that because AI works with a lot of data that has been decontextualized for, the, for a large part, it will be more successful and be able to automate processes that require more objective information rather than the subjective information. So that's kind of where I see AI playing a big role and and also where I see a lot of space for humans to add value to. That last piece is really, I think, the, the most interesting one. It was my final question was, you know, what is the role of humans to play? Because there seems to be a lot of negativity about the future of work and the automation of everything and AI is coming what's left for the humans and you've sort of given a little bit of a, the benefit of, of human intervention. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's a really good point. We've often seen digital strategies that have humans included as human in the loop, but I think the real value add here, Alex, is this mix or, you know, we, we spoke a little bit earlier about the data assets that an organization has, but also the human knowledge and the human assets that we bring to an organization. And I think we vastly undervalue those human assets, partly because we can't articulate it. It's really difficult to measure. And if you ask an employee, what are the human assets that you bring into this? And they might find it really difficult to articulate. But if that, if a key person is missing from that organization, you might find that person was key in a network of people 
to be able to provide some tacit knowledge around that. And so I think what's missing is that warm data piece again. So it's like, you know, what is an organization that has only cold data and has no warm data? Is that organization that much richer than an organization that has a mixture of both? And I think this is where that human piece is. The human piece is that collection of information across many life experiences that you've had growing up as a child through learning about different cultures, different experiences, and all of that, you know, coloring the responses that you make to certain conditions. That's all really valuable information. And I don't think um, we, we appreciate that information nearly as much as we should. Well, that's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, Audrey. Thank you so much, Alex. Such a, such a pleasure to be here today. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.